This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Lucas Blanton, an infectious disease physician and associate professor of medicine at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. We'll be discussing increases in typhus group rickettsiosis in Galveston County, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Blanton. Oh, thank you for having me. Your article is about murine typhus. What is that? Is it the same as what used to be known as typhoid fever? Well, murine typhus is an acute flu-like illness. And like typhoid fever, it's characterized by high fevers. In fact, the word typhus and typhoid are both derived from a Greek word that means sort of smoky or hazy. And in context to these diseases, this refers to the altered sensorium that patients experience when they have these really high fevers. And although fever is the main feature of both diseases, murine typhus and typhoid fever, they're clinically a little different and certainly caused by different organisms. Okay, so what is it caused by? So murine typhus is a bacterial illness, and it's caused by a bacteria named Rickettsia typhi that's spread to people by infected fleas. And this bacteria is related to diseases that cause tick-borne diseases such as Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So these fleas that carry it, how did the fleas get in in the first place? So the fleas feed on infected animals. They feed, they acquire a blood meal from these infected animals, and the fleas become infected. They remain infected for life. The infection doesn't really seem to affect its lifespan or the way the fleas behave, and they can actually spread the infection to their offspring. Oh, terrible. How do the animals that they feed on get it in the first place? So animals are infected by infected fleas, and there are some animals that can remain infected for long periods of time and not really experience any clinical illness. So these animals act as sort of a, an amplifying reservoir. So fleas that feed on these animals, un, uninfected fleas will acquire the infection and sort of carry out this cycle to uninfected animals, which could therefore infect uninfected fleas. So it's a complete circle. The animals get it from the fleas and the fleas get it from the animals. Correct. How do rats, possums, and cats fit into this picture? So rats spread the infection to fleas in most of the world. And at one time, they were responsible for murine typhus in the United States. Now we believe that the increase in murine typhus, at least in Texas and parts of Southern California, is actually related to possums. So possums become infected with rickettsia typhi, just as rats may, in this infected animal to flea to animal cycle and can spread the infection to uninfected fleas. Cats, on the other hand, it's not real sure if they can efficiently spread the bacteria to uninfected fleas, but rather we believe cats act as sort of a vehicle to bring infected fleas closer to humans. Oh, that's okay. That's very interesting. How do people get it then? So it's not necessarily spread by the actual flea bite, which is what a lot of people think. And this is kind of gross. It's actually spread by the flea feces. The, as the fleas feed, they defecate infected flea feces onto a person. And if that person scratches this infected feces material into, say, a flea bite wound, or rubs it onto mucous membranes, such as the conjunctive of the eye, they can get infected. I'm thinking that 
Is it a good recommendation for people not to scratch their flea bites and to wash them immediately to get the poop away? Or should we just stay away from all that? So, you know, there's so few people that recognize flea bites because they're so small that unlike ticks, where you see it attached and can remove it in a controlled manner, people don't really notice when fleas are feeding on them. So it would be a really hard thing to do. Anecdotally, I have walked in areas where there's been flea infestations and have seen fleas on my skin and on my clothing. And I have gone out of my way to make sure I didn't do any scratching, but kind of anecdotal. And flea poop must be so very, very tiny. (laughs) Yes, it's nothing anyone would really notice. It apparently was prevalent in the past and then was gotten under control. How was this achieved? So first, there were rat control programs to aggressively get rid of rats around homes and businesses. But this didn't really work too well for curbing mirroring typhus in the United States. What really worked was the use of DDT. So after World War II, DDT was used specifically in campaigns that control mirroring typhus by spreading it around rat runs and areas where rats were prevalent. And it's really a great example of how vector control was able to curb an infectious disease. The number of reported cases in the United States dramatically fell after that campaign. And how long ago was that? How long has it been absent? So the peak in reporting was in the mid-1940s. We're looking at about 5,000 cases per year. And that's about when they started using DDT in these campaigns to control mirroring typhus. So 10 years later, by the mid-1950s, there were less than 200 cases per year. And those cases were really located in the very southern counties of Texas along the Rio Grande border and in parts of Southern California. And this very low level of uh, endemic disease, looking at 100, 200 cases a year, persisted for decades until about the mid-2000s, where in Texas, it started to reemerge in more northern areas. So what changed? Why the apparent increase? So that's a great question. You know, and I really don't know if anyone really knows the answer. I believe there's a certain threshold of infected fleas that are required to make this cycle go round and round. And over the years, this infected flea threshold has sort of crept up into communities to begin making a noticeable spillover in the people. Now, what has caused this sort of creeping up of the threshold of infected fleas? No one's really sure. Some have wondered if it has anything to do with climate change. Some have wondered if it's the actual number of fleas and perhaps related to the lingering effects of DDT within the environment that have acted on fleas for long periods of time. And then decades later, it's just starting to wane. In reality, no one really knows. You did a serial survey to track this apparent reemergence. How was this done? So we took serum from the lab, the clinical lab at our hospital. It was serum that would have otherwise been discarded. It was collected for routine clinical purposes. Was For example, maybe someone coming in to get their cholesterol checked. So we were able to capture these samples that would otherwise be discarded. We ensured that the samples were from citizens of Galveston County. And basically, we tested the samples to see if they had antibodies against rickettsia typhi. 
which would indicate a prior immune response or exposure to the bacteria. What time periods were you looking at? So we collected the specimens in the winter of 2021, and we compare these specimens to those collected in a very similar manner previously reported from another study that we conducted uh, in 2013. As you said, you specifically looked at the Galveston, Texas area. Do you think the geographic ranges of this reemergence are greater than that? Definitely. There is evidence, and this has been demonstrated by others, looking at data reported to the Texas Department of State Health Services, that cases are increasing, and the cases that are being reported seem to be marching northward as the years pass. I have no doubt that if I were to conduct a similar study using serum from two different points of time in a different region of Texas, that we would probably find similar results. And why did you do this study in the first place? What were you looking for? So I was asked several times if this disease has really reemerged. In other words, is this something that is occurring because there's more of this bacteria and infected fleas around? Or is this just something that physicians are starting to recognize because you have a physician or two physicians in an area that are, are very interested in this disease and are spreading the word? So that's why I decided to conduct this study. And antibodies, we know, persist for some time, sometimes years. So if the number of people with antibodies remained relatively the same over time, we can assume the number of people getting infected has remained relatively constant over time. If the number of people with antibodies has increased over time, we can assume that there are truly more infections occurring, which is what we found. And what was the most interesting thing you did find? And also, was there anything surprising? So the most interesting thing or the surprising thing that I found was the increase in seroprevalence from 2013 to 2021 was a lot more than I thought it would be. It went from 1.2% in 2013 to 7.8% in 2021. I figured there'd be an increase, but not to that degree. And even though those numbers sound low, that's actually a pretty huge increase, right? Yes, definitely. And what are the public health implications of all of this? So over time, more people in more places will be at risk. Infection can really take its toll on people. Someone can have fever for up to three weeks when infected. It's a difficult to diagnose infection, and it requires a very specific antibiotic therapy. So people can make repeated trips to doctors, urgent cares, emergency departments before someone even thinks about nearing typhus. And of course, all this costs money. And for a person who's infected, it costs them some misery and time away from school and from work. So you do think this will continue to spread and increase, yes? Yes, I think it's going to spread northward. I think in places where it's just re-emerging, it's going to increase until it reaches sort of an endemic steady state. Can anything be done? What should or could be done to stop this? Well, I think one thing that's important is the control of fleas in and around homes. The fleas that we believe that are responsible for murine typhus in the United States now are cat fleas, which not only infest possums, but as the name would suggest, they infest dogs and cats. The control of fleas on domestic animals who can bring fleas into the home is important. And lastly, I'd advise people to avoid feeding stray cats or leaving food outdoors. 
to keep possums and other rodents from feeding in the proximity to homes. I had a possum in my yard, and he was very, very, very cute, but I had a humane trapper come and get him, and he took two weeks, but he finally trapped him and then took him out into the woods and actually sent me a picture of him up in a tree, so. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah, I felt good about it. They are, especially the juveniles, the juveniles are quite cute. The older ones, eh, not so much. (laughs) I think this was an older one, but he was so not intimidated by anything. I have a little dog and my dog wasn't any bigger than he was. And I kept like trying to, I picked up the dog and was having the dog like bark at him. I mean, I was doing the barking and I was getting very close and the possum was looking at me like, okay, lady, you're crazy. I finally had to get a broom and make him go. He he was eating the food I put out for the birds. Anyway, is there a vaccine? Unfortunately, there's no available vaccine. That is unfortunate. What's your job and how did you become interested in this topic? Well, I'm an infectious disease physician and as a faculty member at the University of Texas Medical Branch, I'm involved in patient care, education, and research. Early in my training and career, I took an interest in vector-borne diseases and that's when I joined a lab that was working with bacteria in the, in the genus Rickettsia. As I was learning about rickettsial diseases in the lab and with a great mentor, I used my clinical training and I happened to stumble upon some cases of murine typhus in Galveston. And that's when we started to recognize that it was reemerging as an illness here. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Blanton. That was very interesting. I've enjoyed your podcast, so this was great to be invited to talk about some of my work. Well, thank you. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the January 2023 article, Increased Serial Prevalence of Typhus Group Rickettsiosis, Galveston County, Texas, USA, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.